This is Transistor, a science series from PRX. This is Genevieve at PRX. We are partnering with the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. to feature their new podcast. It's called Side Door. This week, two besties turn into lifelong enemies, a researcher embraces the panda craze, and then we get nerdy, taking a close look at dinosaur skulls. This is Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian. I'm Tony Cohn, and with my co-host, Megan Dietry. Hey, guys. We bring you three stories about squabbles big and small, from the aesthetic movement's most enduring home renovation nightmare to a debate that puts the future of an entire ecosystem on the shoulders of one very adorable animal. Our first story about budding heads, though, starts 66 million years ago. There are two types of dinosaur skulls that suggest that their animals may have been engaging in headbutting. That's Hans Seuss, a curator and paleontologist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. One is a form that has a really thick skull roof. A skull that is two feet in length has a skull roof that's a foot thick over the brain. Associated specializations suggest that the skull was used as some kind of battering ram for fighting. Somewhat similar to the thick skull roof that we see in some bighorn sheep. And the other one is a group of dinosaurs called the horned dinosaurs, including the triceratops that have horns over their eyes and often in the nose region as well. And that would, for instance, allow these animals to lock horns, wrestle a little bit. The reason for all this headbutting sounds a tiny bit familiar. Well, these kinds of fighting behavior, when we look in the living world, it's usually to impress mates and to defend territory. So you can show your mate what a fit male you are. Those instincts are really in us, too. We all want to defend our home, impress people, do a little bit of flirting. At least those dinosaur battles served a purpose. Let me tell you about two people fighting mostly over their egos. This is a story about a lifelong grudge between former friends that all began over a dining room. Uh, Wait, a what? Yep, a dining room. Today, it's the best surviving example of an interior from the aesthetic movement. But back when it was painted in the late 1800s, it was the first shot in what would become a war. Meet James McNeil Whistler, a modernist painter and society darling, and Frederick Leyland. Leyland was a shipping magnate who fancied himself a patron of the arts, namely in the form of commissioning works from Whistler. The two men struck up a close friendship and, well, Whistler described their relationship was once friends, forever enemies. That's Dr. Lee Glazer, curator of American art at the Smithsonian's Freer-Sackler Museum of Asian Art. Whistler and Leyland were sort of birds of a feather in a way. They both had huge egos, huge ambition, and really neither one of them was very nice. It was 1876. Leyland was looking to redesign his dining room. Whistler was working on the job, but only to advise on the color of the shutters. And then, as contractors so often do, the guy in charge had to drop out. So suddenly Whistler is in charge of the entire thing. So Leyland goes away for the summer and leaves Whistler to finish the job. 
The dining room was initially envisioned as a sunny Chinese pavilion with yellow leather walls and shelving for Leyland's huge blue and white porcelain collection. That yellow Chinese pavilion met Whistler's imagination, and he proceeded to cover every surface of the room with this blue and gold and green pattern derived from the peacock's feather. See, in England at the time, the trendy thing was for artists and architects to collaborate on rooms that were hyper-beautiful, total works of art. Whistler really wanted to break into that market, and he really saw his work on Leyland's dining room as his opportunity to do that. And he really went for it. And so the effect of being in the Peacock Room, it's a little overwhelming in its sheer gorgeousness. And there's something a little over the top about it, um, threatening maybe to tip into something that is other than beautiful. It's sort of just teetering on the edge of um, decorative perfection. He titled it Harmony in Blue and Gold, colon, The Peacock Room. He did write the entire Leyland family letters over the course of that summer, and he said things like, I'm up on the ladder at 6 in the morning. I don't come down till 9 at night. I'm blind with sleep and blue peacock feathers. Only this wasn't the agreement. Leyland comes home in the fall of 1876 and finds his once tasteful dining room is now a horror show of peacock feathers. Whistler had been using Leyland's house as a kind of public workshop, inviting over the press to watch him work. And on top of that, by today's standards, the bill is roughly $200,000. These guys fight it out in a way only rich people from 19th century England would, with catty letters. All right, here's some of the best burns. Uh, Megan, you be Whistler, and I'll be Leyland. You got it. Whom the gods intend to be ridiculous, they furnish with a frill. I will publicly horsewhip you. You seem to me to be rapidly developing a capacity for becoming a bore. Your swaggering self-assertion has made you an unbearable nuisance. An artistic Barnum. <laughs> Again, here's Lee. It's really hard to know whose side to be on in that argument. Um, do we value art? Do we value money? Do we value the right of the patron and the homeowner or the creative artist who came in and created a masterpiece? I mean, is this just a case of a contractor and friend who went beyond what he was asked to do? Like coming home to find you've got a new swimming pool when you really just wanted a bathtub? Sure, if the swimming pool is painted electric pink and not the soothing gray that you had paid for. Finally, they agree to split the bill, and Whistler is allowed to finish the work. But... He was angry about the money, but even more, he was angry at what he saw as this breach of taste on the part of a patron, and who he was really depending on to sort of catapult him into this next level of artistic superstardom. So Whistler paints all over Leyland's leather walls with a flat blue, then goes to the wall facing the head of the table you know, where Leyland would sit for every meal and stare, and paints a mural of two massive peacocks fighting. He titles it, not so subtly, Art and Money. And if you look very closely at the peacock on the right-hand side, you'll see that he's literally made of money. It's the Leyland peacock, and his breast feathers are made up of gold and silver coins, and scattered at his feet are silver coins representing the money that he shorted Whistler in painting the peacock room. Of course, upon seeing it, Leyland bans Whistler from the house and cuts him off financially. 
Not only has Whistler lost a benefactor and friend, he loses kind of everything. He has a string of unfortunate, highly publicized stumbles and eventually has to file for bankruptcy. What happens to Leyland? He's Whistler's main creditor, so he gets to sell all of Whistler's things, which I'm sure was very satisfying. Until Leyland walks into Whistler's house to inventory the goods, and then he sees it. A grotesque painting of this half-man, half-peacock kind of a thing, squatting on top of Whistler's house. And it has the face of, you guessed it, Leyland. They both behaved very badly. Even though Leyland professed to hate the peacock room, ultimately, he never changed a thing. And so he lived in the room. He used it to display his porcelain. He dined at the head of his table, facing the unflattering portrait of himself as an angry peacock. And the room persisted that way, exactly as Whistler had left it, really until after Leyland's death. And as a matter of fact, Leyland even would open the room to tourists of the right sort and critics. It survived intact for over 100 years, having been dismantled in London and brought to Detroit at the turn of the century, and then again shipped to the Smithsonian when the Freer Gallery of Art was built in the 1920s. So it all shakes out all right in the end. But they never really hug it out, and Whistler would never step foot in that room again. But you can. When the Freer Gallery of Art reopens in Washington, D.C. next summer, the Peacock Room goes back on display in full plumage. When we're invested in something, we have no problem bickering about it. Like talking politics at Thanksgiving with your uncle. Everyone thinks they have the answer. Know what people have been butting heads about in recent years? Conservation. You've heard of Tian Tian, Mei Shang, Bao Bao, and Bei Bei. Those pandas everyone is obsessed with at the Smithsonian National Zoo? Well, some conservationists think they aren't worth the hassle. What? Hear me out. With such limited funds, some people say that we should be prioritizing conservation differently. They think that it's important to weigh a bunch of factors, such as costs or what animal plays an essential role in the habitat, like pollinators, while others believe that it's most important to get people to care. And you do that through charismatic animals. By charismatic animals, you mean the big symbolic ones like elephants and lions and whales? Yeah, you know, the kind that get lead roles in the movies. <laughs> okay. But honestly, these pandas, if you ask me, they are just coasting on that popularity. They spend 18 hours a day eating, hardly move, rarely mate. They are total freeloaders. You can say that, but there's no denying that people love them. You know, Bill McShay, a research scientist at the Smithsonian's Conservation Biology Institute, has a name for people like you. Gorgeous. He says you have a sickness called panda love. This is him giving a talk at TEDx Foggy Bottom back in 2014. I've worked in many countries with many different animals. And when I meet people and I start telling my life story, sooner or later it comes out that I'm the panda guy at the National Zoo. I have to let you know I'm not so enamored with pandas. To me, they're an average animal. If I was a professor, 
I would say they're a solid B, no better, no worse. But I seem to be alone in this categorization of pandas. <laughs> Giant pandas are a bear, and they're an average bear. They're not the biggest bear. They're not the smallest bear. They're just a bear, an average bear. You say, no, 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 it's the color. I love that color, that black and white stuff. That is unique. No other bear looks like that. No, there's an all white bear, there's an all black bear, but most bears are black and white, like the panda, very average. You say, no, it's the way the face looks. Look at that face, look at those eyes, look at that mouth, that is cute. <laughs> and you're right, you're hardwired to love that face. That face looks a lot like a baby face, the big eyes, the round look, the little cupid mouth. Either you're hardwired to love babies, or you spend too much time watching cartoons as a young child because that's exactly the look they give you in Disney. That could be why you love pandas, too much TV. Oh, come on, isn't that just being cynical? But his argument makes sense. I'm not saying we don't love them. I'm saying they don't come cheap and they take a lot of time and money and management, both in zoos and in the wild. Our zoos don't even own the pandas, and they pay millions of dollars a year to borrow them from China. And China uses that money to build reserves. Sure, but some places are trying something new, where conservation isn't just focused on which animal has the most significance for us, but instead looks at costs and how easy it would be to maintain them, and most importantly, what they mean for the habitat at large. Let's look at New Zealand. A few years ago, their Department of Conservation changed their whole approach. They took 700 at-risk species, ranked them according to their strategic impact, and sadly, for folks who feel like you, some of their most adorable animals, like the rockhopper penguin, were a low priority. But this refusal to not be blinded by cuddliness, officials say will help them save twice as many species. Yeah, but cuddliness can be the path to greater conservation. Our attachment to pandas is what's protecting forests in China. Let's hash it out with Bill McShay. Pandas are the gateway drug to wildlife conservation, that you can get hooked on pandas relatively easily. And once you're hooked on pandas, we hope you become hooked on other things that you see live in the same world that, that pandas live in. When you help pandas, you also help the places they live and the plants and animals that live alongside them. The red pandas and the takin and the, the golden pheasants. Yes, you originally liked a panda because it was the cutest thing on earth, but you can also like the rest of the package. Cuteness pays. Zoo loans and donations from panda fans have raised millions, which has funded 65 giant panda reserves which gave us 20% more pandas living in the wild in the last decade. We want people to be interested in all of conservation, the whole package, the forests, the ferns, the moss, the, the animals, the birds, the whole thing. Almost nobody comes into this from that direction. Everybody comes into it from an individual animal or a connection with an individual person. Pandas lead you to a bigger story. and. If you're not going to come in by pandas, how are you going to come in? Megan, let's go meet Marty Deary, a zookeeper who works with the pandas, and Bow Bow the panda herself. Sit. 
good. Bao Bao is, she's an interesting mix of her parents. So she is very much like her father in the sense that she is very playful. She's very engaged in things that we offer her. But like her mother, she can be a little bit more reserved. So if things change, she's a little bit more sensitive to that like her mother. Millions of people visit the zoo annually, and even more people watch the panda cam online. Pandas that we have here at National are an ambassador to those wild animals. There are only 50 pandas living in zoos outside of China, but that may change one day. Thanks to reproductive technology, the number of captive bred pandas reached 300 last year. Here's Bill McShay again. We can't say, oh, they're an evolutionary dead end. What a mistake. I bet you they feel sorry now. No, they're, they're fine. They're, they're fine. They're, they are reproducing. They are living. They are, they are increasing in numbers. They just need a little more management than most animals right now. So while Bill McShay may not think they're the most extraordinary animals, he is grateful that they exist. Thank God there are giant pandas. If there weren't giant pandas, what would we what would we do in that part of the world? These ecosystems are in trouble, and where they're not going to be saved by logic alone, they're going to be saved by some kind of empathy. And it's hard to empathize with a bamboo forest, but it is easy to empathize with a giant panda. And if that's the way I save the bamboo forest, so be it. I'll take it. the attention, support, and research, if we as humans are going to rally behind anything, it's pandas. But I still think you are just Looney Tunes for the amount of time you spend watching a panda take a bath. I take that very personally. You probably should. Maybe a good fight every once in a while really isn't such a bad thing. Thanks for listening to Side Door. If you want to check out an app about the Peacock Room, obsessively watch the Panda Cam, or get hooked up with more dinosaur knowledge, we've got links and info on our website, si.edu slash Side Door. Side Door is produced by Megan Dietrich and me, Tony Cohn. Jason Orfanon is our executive producer. Megan Dietrich is the series producer. Special thanks to Nico Picaro, Barbara Reem, Kat Roman, Gabe Kozowitz, Ann Kananen, Casey McAdams, and Jess Sadek. If you like us, subscribe on iTunes. If you really like us, write a review. And of course, tell your friends. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. If you want to hear more from Side Door, check out the last episode of Transistor. Also, we'll be featuring more of their stories in the coming weeks. Your Transistor team is me, I'm Genevieve Sponsler. PRX Chief Content Officer John Barth and Producer Josh Swartz. Transistor is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. This is PRX.